Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts, Acts chapter 21. Um, uh, Said last week, we are two years into the book of Acts with lots of different breaks. uh, And we have been going through with different little breaks where we go and study 1 Corinthians or study Ephesians or study other things. And we are uh, at chapter 21 now. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 21, verse 17 is where we'll start today. 17. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll read the scriptures together. Um, Actually, I want to read first. So uh, before we read, though, uh, let me say this. At at Remedy, whenever we... Whenever we read the scriptures, we ask everyone to stand. So if you're able to stand, we'd love for you to stand. And as I read, I'm going to start at verse 17, and I'm going to go through verse 26. Uh, It's a shorter uh, section today. I wanted to do the whole first half of 21 and then the whole second half of 21 uh, today, first half of 21 last week. But as I was going through and studying, I had to stop at 26 because there's some some controversy that's going on there. And I I needed more time, and I even went long for a service on even a smaller amount of verses. But there's some controversy I want to try to explain, uh, and then we'll get to uh, 27 and following next week. But um, as we're, uh, uh, sorry about that, as we're going to read here, uh, I'm going to look at 17 through 26. And as we're, as we're reading, um, at the very end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, this is what we do at Remedy, you'll say, thanks be to God. And just that's symbolizing a couple things. Um, first, your overall thankfulness that the Lord would be so kind to give us his scriptures. But then secondly, uh, by saying thanks be to God, I want you to, in your mind, kind of mentally assent to the fact that, yes, Lord, I'm thankful. And as I hear things in these scriptures that challenge me and cause me to want to trust you and cause me to want to obey you, yes, I want to do those things. So as you say thanks be to God, uh, I want you to, in your head and heart, say, and the things I hear, I want to obey. So let's stand and we'll read the scriptures together. We're going to start at chapter 21, starting at verse 17. Start, starting at verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are <clears throat> among the Jews of those who have, been, who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among among with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and and from blood and from what is strangled and from sexual morality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for short little narratives of text where we see Paul uh, going into a city and talking with people and then uh, going into the temple with them. And it can present, um, for those that have been tracking all the way through here, some some questions for sure. Um, And even for those that maybe are joining for the first time, uh, it can can bring up some, some wonderings about how each verse of Scripture is applicable and inerrant and, and, and needed for our everyday life. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and do a special work in all of our hearts to where we see that every scripture of yours is important and every scripture teaches us and that these particular verses this morning would teach us mightily about who Christ is, what he's done, and how we can live accordingly to that. And so um, I, I pray for myself, God, that you would give me not just a clear mind, but uh, a clear transmission of words that People will be able to follow and understand what I'm saying, um, not just for knowledge, mere knowledge in and of itself, but also, God, that we would be changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus and want to live differently. So help me, help, me, help me say those things clearly. Thank you for everyone here, my friends and Holy Spirit. At the end of all of this, um, we pray that we would love and adore Jesus more. 
that we would be so moved that he would give his life for us on the cross, that we would love and adore him more. And for anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, that they would come to know Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I've said, as we've been going through the book of Acts, the point of the book of Acts is given to us by Luke and Acts 1-8. He tells us at the very beginning why he wrote the entire 28-chapter book, Acts 1-8, that this gospel would be preached to Jerusalem, and then they would go to uh, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the, the outline of the book of Acts is that, where we see the gospel being preached in Jerusalem in the first few chapters, 1 through 7, 8 through 13, where the gospel is preached eight through, uh, to Ju- Judea and Samaria, and then 14 all the way through 28, where the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. And that's the point. That, that's what Luke is wanting to do as he's writing. And as he's writing, um, it's easy for us because uh, we, we're people and we live and look look through the lives of people to think that the main characters are people in the book of Acts, that the main character for the first kind of, I don't know, eight chapters is Peter, and then Paul gets saved in nine, and then we transform back to Peter with his interaction with Cornelius, seeing that Gentiles can get saved, and then we move back over to Paul, and then the main character was Peter for the first kind of eight chapters, and now the main character is Paul, and so we would think to ourselves, well, the main character of, these, of this particular book that Luke has wanted us to see is Peter. Now it's Paul. And as we're seeing Paul, we see his three missionary journeys. And then uh, we want to know what happens to Paul. And we see, I'll, I'll give it away. Hopefully you know it already. If you're a believer in Jesus, that he, gets, he does get to Rome. And then it just gets him in prison. And then it ends. And we're like, well, what happens? Well, church history teaches us that Paul's eventually beheaded. But Luke doesn't tell us that in the book of, of, the book of Acts. So we don't know. Like, we're all kind of left on a cliffhanger. And some people have even said, well, did Paul not finish? Is there an Acts 29? Like, not like church planning network, but like a, a, a real chapter where he like tells us what happens to Paul? Like, what happens? Well, the main character isn't Peter or Paul. The main character is the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 1-8 is telling us that he wants the gospel to be preached in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, which their mind was Rome. And at the end of chapter 28, Paul's in prison in Rome, and we can surmise Paul has been there for a couple years. He's preached the gospel. Mission accomplished. We don't need to know what happens to Paul because Paul's not the main character. The whole point's for us to know how the gospel got to the ends of the earth. Now, back into here. Um, although... Uh, <clears throat> The Holy Spirit's the main character of the book of Acts. Luke is using people to tell us about what the Holy Spirit's doing. And so as he's using people, he's using Paul right now. And the way he's been portraying Paul from chapter 13 to verse 21, which we saw last week, to the middle of chapter 21 is Paul's on offense. Paul's going to first missionary journey. He's getting the trash beat out of him, but he keeps going no matter what. And he goes on the second missionary journey. He's raising money because he wants to help the, the poor Jewish people who are back in Jerusalem. He's, he's actually raising money from Gentiles. He goes on the third missionary journey, goes even further, goes all around. And he, he stops and has that talk with the Ephesian elders. He, he's on his boat ride back, and he has these friends that help him. And we get last week to where he's, he goes into Jerusalem. He has some disciples that are Gentiles walking into the city of Jerusalem, third missionary journey journey is over. He's going into Jerusalem. We finished Paul on offense for a many number of chapters. What Luke's going to do in the way that he's structuring his narrative is he's switching uh, how we view Paul now. For the next rest of the book, um, Paul is on offense with three missionary journeys. Now Paul is going to be on defense having trials against him. Five trials. And so starting with 21, 23-1, 24-1, 25-1, 26-1 are the five kind of trials that Paul is going to have where he has to kind of defend himself. So he's, he's portraying Paul in a different way now. And as he's portraying Paul in a different way, uh, we're going to see what leads into that while he's on defense. He's going to eventually be arrested shipped from Jerusalem up to Rome and be put in prison, house arrest for a couple of years. And then, as we know, church history is eventually killed for his faith. Um, but what we're going to see here is Paul enters into Jerusalem. And as he's entering into Jerusalem, Jerusalem, um, no surprise here, is full of Jews who are Christians. Paul's been a, a minister to the Gentiles and even has some Gentiles with him. So you can just kind of picture, and if you can, feel it with me, the 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 uh, questions that are going to rise as Paul's telling about all these Gentiles that are getting saved and even bringing some Gentiles and money from Gentiles into Jerusalem where the Jewish Christians are that love Jesus and think differently and practice different Jewish customs and have a whole different background than Gentiles. And he's bringing money from the Gentiles to give to the poor Jews. What's going to happen as James, the, the leader of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and Paul, the leader of the Gentile Christians, come, who Paul is also a Jew, come together... 
And as they come together, how's this interaction going to look and how's it going to feel? And is there going to be uh, good things that come from it, bad things that come from it? What's going to happen? Um, Not only that, we're also going to see quite a controversial moment that Paul uh, takes part of. We'll get into that in point three a little bit later on. But as we're going into that, I think maybe we can look at this particular text and kind of ask these preliminary questions because there's some, some real-life applications in the 21st century that we're living in that we need to ask. Um, perhaps you think this way. I'm sure you do as a believer in Jesus, if you've been a believer for a while. If you're not a believer in Jesus, um, I'm going to talk to you in just a second uh, about how you can be one um, and why that's important. Um, but for those of that are Christians and have been Christians for a while, you probably ask these kinds of questions in your head and your heart uh, as you've been going through your, 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 your um, walk in, with Christ. You ever struggle wondering to know if the gospel has really taken root in your heart in such a way that you want to live out your faith in action? Like, I want to live this out, like, for real. Not just, like, half-heartedly, um, I don't want to just be on cruise control, just kind of cruise through life, but I really want to have tangible examples of the gospel in action through me. That's not saving me. It's not earning salvation for me if I'm doing those things, but it's giving evidence that something's happened and now I'm doing stuff. Like I'm really, I'm really living this out. Like the love I have for Christ has so moved me that I have tangible examples of the gospel in action, not just in my own heart, but in the lives of others. I think we all can say, yes, I've thought that. And sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I need even some examples of what that might look like. Well, there's a billion we could give, right? But this particular text gives us, I think, three examples that we can take from here and have in our own kind of 21st century walk with Christ and say, well, here's something I could be doing. Here's something I could be doing. Here's something I could be doing. And those three things put on display for me the gospel in action. Now, um, I want to start with the good news, uh, to make sure that we understand. And I'm going to start in Galatians. I, I say this every week. There's a billion places I could go to explain the gospel because the gospel is multifaceted. <clears throat> I want to use Galatians today to, help sure, to make sure we all understand the gospel. Uh, if you are picking up, uh, if you're picking up the controversy, then you're going to know why I'm going to Galatians. Um, the controversy being James' proposal, verse 23 and 24. Don't go to that because I'm going to figure out the controversy. I'm not going to listen to the gospel right now. Listen to the gospel. Um, so uh, Galatians, um, if you want to flip with me, you can. Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Now, um, I want to make sure I say this quite often. I don't know if I've said it lately because I hadn't really preached in forever um, except for last week. So like the gospel is for everyone at all times. If you knew someone that was an unbeliever, you would agree with me. They need to hear the gospel like really fast. Like seriously need to hear it because if they don't, then that means their eternal life is at stake. They, they could go to hell forever and be in their sin. And I say, just as much as you would agree with me that they need to hear the gospel so they can get saved, Christians need to continually hear the gospel just as much as unbelievers in order to continually live like a believer. Because if we don't, after we get saved, we'll easily revert to thinking, I'm right with God, everything's good, and now I've had this, oh, I'm going through sanctification, oh man, I do bad things, and I do, uh, sometimes I don't do the right things, oh, I feel like I'm out of relationship with God. Well, the only way now that I can have a right relationship with God is to earn it by keeping his law. It's really easy for us to switch over to that, to which you have to be, at that moment, preach the gospel, where you say, the only way I can have a right relationship with God is someone to tell me your right relationship with God is based on the fact that you have trusted in Christ and now he has declared you completely holy and righteous. And so you don't ever have to in your mind think, oh man, I've messed up. God doesn't like me anymore. Let me, let me give some money in the offering and let me uh, get up really early and read the Bible more because then he'll like me. Then he'll really be proud of me. Then he'll really accept me. So just as much as an unbeliever needs to hear the gospel, a believer needs to hear the gospel, that that's not true. Sure, you can do those things, and that's good if you do those things. But what makes you have a right relationship with God is trusting in Christ and remembering that since you have trusted in Christ, you are now forgiven, holy, righteous, a son, a daughter. And we are so prone to law-keeping that we have to be reminded of that. And so I want to do that now. Unbelievers, this is, where, this is for you. 
So in Galatians 2.20, Paul's explaining to us, uh, for those that have put their faith in Christ, for those that have become believers, for those that have asked for for forgiveness of sin, that they know that they were separated by their sin, and now that they're separated by sin, they've, they've trusted in Christ, they've received forgiveness of Christ, and they're walking through this life, Paul tells us this um, in, in Galatians 2.20. For I, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we look at this, we think to ourselves, um, when Jesus died on the cross and gave his life for us so that we can be forgiven, we also have to reckon the old biblical word reckon, or count ourselves as being crucified with him. Not in the same way as him. Of course, he's the one that gave his life for us to be saved, but we have to count ourselves as having died because our life's not our own anymore, but now we're Christ's. And since that's the case, we're also hidden in Christ and we have his righteousness. And now, since I'm still alive, if I pinch my, like I felt that, surely Christ comes in us and we have Jesus in us, but he doesn't come so much in us that I'm literally obliterated and it's just Jesus walking around because if it was, you'd probably like me a whole lot more, right? Because it'd be Jesus and he's gotta be way more likable than me. But like if I pinch myself, I feel it. And so that means, oh, I'm still alive. Christ's in me, but I'm still alive. And since I'm still alive, this is how I live. I think to myself, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, but I'm also living. So the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That means, as I continually walk through progressive sanctification, the way I live is by putting my faith constantly in what's happened before. That that declaration that Christ died for me is how I'm to live. I constantly live by trusting in the finished work of Christ now, every day. I trust in the finished work of Christ now, every day. And as I do that, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. And when I do that, when I continually trust in Christ and his finished work, It should so affect my heart continually. Like, make me have these growing, stirring affections for Jesus that I want to live a life of action for him. I want to. So when I think these questions, do I struggle with living for Christ? Am I on cruise control? Are there tangible examples of the gospel in my life? The way that I'm going to do that is by returning to the gospel, and continually having a growing, stirring affections for Jesus. And then I will live in action things for Jesus, not earning salvation, but giving evidence of salvation. So as we're walking into verse 17 here, um, we're going to see three ways that we can have our lives um, displaying gospel action. That we'll, These are three things that we can do. Now, don't chart chart these things down and say, well, then I'm going to do them, and then I'm finally like good, and then I know I'm right with God. <laughs> no, no, no. We got it all wrong. That's, that's backwards if we do it that way. It's, I'm going to continually think on the good news of the gospel, and as Jesus so inflames my heart for him, then I'm going to live out tangible examples. It might not be these three, but this is the text we're in today. <laughs> so these are the three I'm going to give you. It could be any number of others, but I want you to see these. All right, verse 17. So as I said, Paul's been on his three missionary journeys. He's take, taken the, the long boat ride from Miletus back to Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm going to use the map. I'm going to use the map. I didn't use it last week, but, or last service, but y'all are, y'all are special. So he's, he's right here in Miletus at, in the inn. He's going to take this long boat ride back to Tyre. He's going to hike, and he's finally back in Jerusalem. Now, Rome's, you know, it's way up there. He's eventually going to get to Rome again, but he's here in Jerusalem, right in the middle of where everything started. I mean, this is where the Jewish faith has found its roots forever. And he's there. And so he's been up in Galatia, I mean, you know, Galatia, Asia, all these places. He's been up in, in Gentile land. And he's finally bringing back money from Gentile land to the heart of Jewish Christianity and going to visit with them. And you can see here in verse 17, you can take off the map now. Good to go, I don't know where to go. Go to the title. He went to Jerusalem. And when we come into Jerusalem, look at this. The brothers received us gladly. So let's, let's make sure we get the full weight of what's happening. In verse 17, Paul's coming with a whole bunch of Gentile Christians into Jerusalem. Christians. I mean, there's Jews there, but there's also Jewish Christians there. And it says the brothers, so that's the Jewish Christians. This is great. This is great news. Received us gladly. So we could just read that and be like, of course they did. They're all Christians, but we're all Gentiles, right? We, and we don't live in the first century. There's a lot of like, oh, I wonder how this is going to go. 
these Gentile Christians, these Jewish Christians, Paul's posse and James' posse, are they going to be okay? Are they, are they going to be like, you're not Jewish, you're not a Gentile. Are they going to fight or is it going to work out? Well, this is what it says. This is awesome. The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us. So the us, obviously Luke and whoever else is there, went with us to James. And all the elders were present. So we're going to see what happens, but if you don't know who James is, James is the one that wrote the book of James. He's Jesus' half-brother. He's Jesus' half-brother. He didn't get saved or he, he didn't become a Christian until after the resurrection. So he, he was not a believer that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. I, here's why. Do you have a brother? If he told you, I'm the Messiah, <laughs> what would you say? You'd be like, no, you're not. He, we grew up together. I watched... Mom and dad changed your diaper. Well, I guess they didn't since Jesus is the oldest. But you know what? I, like, if your brother said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm the Messiah, you'd be like, no, you're not. No, you're not. But then after the resurrection and the ascension, James is thinking, man, my parents always told me to be like Jesus, but <laughs> your older brother, but I don't remember him doing anything wrong. And then he didn't sin, and he went to the cross, and then he resurrected from, no one does that. He really was the Messiah. And so James realizes all this, becomes a Christian, and the, he, then he ascends to leadership in Jerusalem because he's the brother of Jesus pretty quick. He, so he ascends to leadership pretty quickly. Everybody respects James. He, he's killed for his faith as well. Um, but anyway, um, everybody's killed for their faith except for John. John didn't die for his faith. Um, he was persecuted and boiled in oil and then exiled to the island of Patmos. So it's not necessarily a great trade-off, but that's way off subject. All right, so here it is. Um, so on, following the day, Paul went in with James and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, Paul relates one by one all the things that God had done among all the Gentiles on those three missionary journeys um, in his ministry. So Paul just tells them, basically, chapter 13 to 21, he brings them up to skip, like, this is everything that God's been doing the entire time I've been on my missionary journeys. Listen to all these Gentiles that are getting saved. Gentile, Gentile, save, 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 save. And they could, we could ask ourselves, oh man, are they going to receive this? Are they going to be like, yeah, it's awesome, or are they going to be like, well, um... That's great, but we're Jews, and this is really a Jewish faith. Now, we've already seen a little bit in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, what's the, what's the thought on Gentile salvations? But um, here's what happens. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. When they heard it, they glorified God. So what we can see here is this. Jewish people with a historically Jewish faith, hear that Gentiles, people completely not like them, are coming to know Christ, and they don't put parameters around it immediately. They, there have been parameters from uh, uh, Acts 15, and we're going to see those actually in verse 25. There are some, but the immediate response isn't, hey, just want to make sure that they, they run all the tests. It's celebration. That's awesome. We celebrate. So let's, let's put number one up. Put number one up. So the first tangible example of the gospel and action in our lives is this. There should be, I put will be, there should be times of God-glorifying celebration for gospel advancement. In your life, if you're wondering if the gospel has taken hold of your heart in such a way that you are living it out, when you hear XYZ got saved and XYZ is not like you, you celebrate. You're like, yes, that's awesome they got saved. It's not, wait a second, want to make sure that they checked my rules and that the ways that they got saved go according to the way I think that it should happen because I have a, a list of the way it should happen. If they're professing Christ and Christ alone for salvation, John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, or whatever, then we celebrate. And that should be just a, a given in our lives. Gospel has taken root in your heart. You celebrate salvation. You celebrate it. That's what happens here. Now, if you look over at 25, uh, verse 25, which is just a kind of a, a summation of Acts 15, 18 through 20. Um, there are some parameters that the Jerusalem Council decided. When Gentiles get saved, then no, they don't have to keep Jewish law. They don't have to keep Jewish customs. But we would want them to do these things. It doesn't save them, but it does practice um, 
good neighborly love to those who are Jewish if they don't do these things. And it says in verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've already sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols. Again, he, we covered that in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, we, but that's just out of love for Jewish, for, for people, or for the other Gentiles. Um, and it also says, abstain from sacrifice, the blood, uh, let me read that again. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, that's just a given. You shouldn't do that. But they've already made this list, which they made in Acts chapter 15, when they had finished the Jerusalem council. You can see that in verses 19 through 21, uh, the same kind of list. Uh, Those are the things that we've already said we want you to do uh, if you're a Gentile coming into the Christian faith. Now, but what they do is they glorify God. They're excited that this happened. They celebrate Gospel advancement. So let's just ask our questions are here. Let's, let's transport this application into the 21st century into our own lives. Are we doing that? Um, we at Remedy and every church in, the, in, the, in the North America and the world, this isn't just for us, but every church needs to see more salvations. We just need to see more. There should be more people getting saved. And if that's happening, both on Sunday mornings and during the week, if that's happening, um, are we doing it? Are we celebrating it when people that aren't necessarily uh, like our, our kind of fixed thoughts of how Christianity should be, when they're getting saved, are we celebrating it? Um, are you telling people about it when it's happening? If you're, if you're sharing the gospel with people and people are getting saved, then you should bless us by letting us know that people are getting saved so we can all celebrate with you. And we want to enter into that joy with you and celebrate with you. Also, um, whenever that happens, are you... Are you uh, putting certain parameters around the, around the way the gospel should be shared or are you f- sharing it as freely as you can with everybody that you can, not changing the message and not sinning. Like th- those are the kind of the, the main things that you don't need to do. So let's, let's think deeply about God glorifying celebration for gospel advancement. What does it look like? We're not putting unnecessary parameters around that and we're celebrating when we hear about it, especially whenever they're not like us. So that's the case here. The Gentiles are celebrating and telling the Jews what happened. Now, there's a response that, uh, that James has. There's a response when he says this. And they said to him. So Paul told James and the Jewish Christians, look at this. The Jewish Christians tell Paul. Well, guess what? Here, we're different than y'all. You can see the other half of 20. You see, brother, James says to Paul, how many thousands among the Jews are being, or, or, uh, of those who have believed? Just like that, we're also getting saved. So this is a great time for us to celebrate and be happy and, and, and rejoice. Now, I want to, uh, on the second point, talk about something that's not directly in the text. However, uh, it does happen in this moment. It does happen in this moment. As I've said last week and several times, as Paul was on his three missionary journeys, he collected money continually from all the Gentiles, uh, even from some Gentile churches that were super poor. Like he was collecting money continually. And he did it because when he came back into Jerusalem, after he had went to all those cities, when he came back into Jerusalem, he wanted to take that money and give that money to the Jewish people that were believers that were really super poor. He wanted to give that, that money to them to help their lives be changed, to, to bring them up out of their poverty, to bring them up out of their despair, to serve those people who were poor. Now, it's not in this particular text that Luke doesn't say, and this is where Paul gave the money in this text, but we do know that he did do it here. If you flip to Acts chapter 24, verse 17, 24, verse 17, Paul's recounting this moment when he comes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple, and in 24, 17, he tells us, while I was there, I gave the money. Verse 24, 17. Now, several, after several years, I came, here it is, to bring alms, that's the money that he collected, uh, to my nation, that's Jerusalem, and to present offerings. That's what we're going to see in verses 20 through 26. So he doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us directly that it happened in this verse, in, in chapter 21, 17 through 26, but he does tell us later on that it does happen. So we know that it happens. You can ask the preliminary question. Why doesn't Luke say it here? Well, I think because of what I've already talked about. Luke's, Luke's painting this narrative with intentionality, and he's, he's put Paul on offense 
uh, and he's transitioning to Paul on defense with the five trials. And as he's painting that narrative, it doesn't fit into uh, the way he's trying to tell the narrative of the gospel going to all the nations. And he doesn't say, by the way, when he did that, he did the offering. He just doesn't do it, right? I don't know why. You can ask him when we're in heaven. Uh, But he does tell us that it happened. We know that it happens. Paul also mentions it in Romans 15, 31, that it happens. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute, but it happens here. But since it happens here, there's a good application for us that we can draw from this. Um, Here's number two. Here's number two. An evidence of the gospel in action in our lives is this. There will be a gospel-shaped giving of resources that adorn the good news. In your life, there should be a gospel shaped, it's not just out of compulsion, it's not out of like, oh, I gotta do it because I feel bad. It's gospel shaped. It's because of what Christ has done for you, you want to do that for others. You want to find the resources that, that you have because Christ has done this, and in the same way, God gave the Son, withholding nothing in order to save, I want to take my resources, and in the same mindset that God had to give his son, which is pure joy, I want to give my resources to other people to help them. And we want, as it says, to adorn the gospel or tell the truth of the good news. I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, But uh, let's talk about this offering that's happening, and we'll get to the challenge here in a second. So uh, when Paul gave this offering or this, this money to the to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, he's wanting to accomplish two things. Two things he's wanting to accomplish. Number one, it's just the obvious one. He's wanting to help the poor people there. Now, <clears throat> as there's, there's poor people there in, in, in Jerusalem, he's wanting to take it, and as he gives it to them, uh, help them get out of their poverty so that their manner of life that they're in will be changed for the good. It will be changed for the positive. And that's what I mean by adorn the gospel. So when... Physically, you give resources to someone who is poor and needy, it should change their physical outcome of life. It should make them be able to get out of that poor, needy state. And so whenever we use our resources to adorn the gospel, we do the same thing. Because in a physical sense where we give somebody money and it pours them out of their their needy state, the gospel itself does that. It comes to you and I who are poor and needy and bankrupt spiritually. And when we hear it, Jesus pulls us out of that state and saves us forever. So in the same way that the money of resources that we give does that for people physically, the gospel does that for us. And so we want to use our resources in such a way that adorn or tell the truth of the good news that's happened to us spiritually. Now you could say to yourself, I can't do that. I don't have resources. I can't do that. That's for the people that have the money, not me. We all know that's not true. We all know that every single one of us have money. We live in the richest, one of the richest countries in the world, and we live as the richest people in the world. There's all kinds of people that are way poorer than us. And so you have and I have more resources that we could, if we think about it, that we could, I mean, let's, let's pay our bills, right? We need to eat. We need to pay our water bills so our toilets can flush. It's good to have toilets that flush, right? But after all those things happen... You and I will have money every month. We will. And we want to use those resources that God's given us to adorn the good news of the gospel to help people around us. That's what Paul's wanting to do here. He's wanting to help the poor. And we can do that as well. There's a second thing that Paul's trying to accomplish. Um, It's pretty obvious here. He's taking money from Gentiles, bringing it to people who are Jewish, and hopes that, of course, he would help those who are Jewish to be lifted out of poverty, but also to, to create now a, a sense of unity between Jews and Gentiles, a thankfulness of the Jews that the Gentiles, who are also equally poor, some of them were, were poor in Macedonia, etc., uh, who were willing to give, even in, their po- even in their poverty, as it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, that they would see that as just so amazing that they would, they would create a unity between Jews and Gentiles here. That the, the sense in which when Ephesians says that the barrier has been broken down, they would say, yes, that's true. And we are one now as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's striving for unity between Jews and Gentiles. Now, I've already said that Romans 15, 31, Paul says he gives that, gives that gift. And if you read it, um, well, I'll read it to you. I didn't read it first service, but, you know, I'll read it to y'all because y'all, y'all are cooler than them. I'm just kidding, you're not. You're, you're all the same. Love you all equally. My kids ask me that. Who do you love the best? I love you all equally. I love you all equally. All right, anyway, 31. 
so strange I say that. All right. Um, I'll start at 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered by the unbelievers in Judea, and here it is, that my service for Jerusalem, this is the money that they gave, may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. And as people have read this, they've said when he's praying that it may, thy service to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, there's, there's questions of, that arise later on if the, the unity that he was striving for truly happened. I don't, I, I don't know for sure, but we do know that he gave it to them. We do know that he gave it to them with the intention of trying to strive for unity between Jews and Gentiles. So, that's the second thing that happens. Stott says, says this about the, uh, the striving for unity. He says, the chief significance of this offering that Paul gave to the Jew- Jews there is uh, laying its symbolism. It exemplified the solidarity of Gentile believers with their Jewish sisters and brothers. He wanted the Jews and Gentiles to see, the, see each other as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's why representatives of the Gentile churches had traveled all the way from Corinth with Paul in order to share and present these gifts to the people who are Jewish and now are even present with Paul to give the gifts. They wanted there to be, create solidarity between them. So, uh, back to this idea of, of adorning the gospel. This means that with our resources that you and I have, whenever we have abundance, which we all do, are we telling the truth about what's happened to us with our resources to those around us that have, that have need? Are we also saying, since Christ has been so generous to me, I want to use these resources to bless you, not just physically, but also come alongside you and tell you the gospel, tell you the good news of Christ, so that in the same way that you could be helped out of your physical poverty, you could also more so be brought out of your spiritual poverty and then receive eternal life forever. So this is what we should do with our resources. And this is why God gives us resources, that we would use them to adorn the gospel. Let's just let's ask this question here. It's really easy. Are we... Number one, celebrating salvations around us whenever people get saved, especially if they're not getting saved the way that we think it should happen. And number two, are we living our lives in action by taking the resources God has given us, though you might think they're, they're small, and advancing the gospel with them and, and helping those in need around us? Are we doing that? If you are, that's awesome. And if you're like, oh, I could do more. I'm not trying to, be, Fudd's not here to beat you up. Like, you're doing it, that's awesome. If you're not doing it at all, then it's not going to earn God's favor if you do it. It's going to give evidence that you're in love with Jesus. It's going to give evidence that you love Jesus and you want to do that. You want to tell the truth about what's already happened to you. Now, I'm not beating you up and saying you got to do it. If you never do it and you're really a believer, you're always still a believer. But I think we would want to. We would want to do that. Now, um, we're going to the controversial part here. Controversial part here. As we're going to get to verse 21... There's going to be uh, this proposal of James. Now, before we do that, I want to read 1 Corinthians 9 and let that serve for us as a, a bit of a foundation to what I think is going on in Paul's mind. All right? Uh, you, we'll see the controversy as I, as I go through it. Hopefully, I can explain it well. Um, so, here's what's going on. Now, Paul's already said in 1 Corinthians 9 that whenever he's with people, he wants people that aren't Christians to hear the gospel, receive the gospel, almost he's willing to do anything that's not sinful and doesn't compromise the gospel. So I'll, I'll read verse, I'm in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm gonna read verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made a, my, myself a servant to all that I might win more. He wants people to get saved. And then he says this, to the Jews, and this is particularly helpful right now as we're looking at Paul interacting with the Jews in Jerusalem. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, to those under the law, those who are people who are Jewish Christians that still might practice some of the Jewish customs, uh, even though they're Christians. Let me just make sure you understand what I'm saying. Um, so those who are Jewish get saved, and they still want to do circumcision. That doesn't save. But are they wrong for doing circumcision still? No. Like, even now, if, if Christians circumcise children... They're not doing it because they think it makes them right with God. 
They're just doing it because they, for, for Jews in the first century, because that was part of their customs. And for Gentiles, conversely, if they don't want to circumcise their children, they're also not out of the will of God. Neither one of those, but there are people who are Jewish that still wanted to live out Jewish customs. They still wanted to eat the certain foods. They still wanted to do certain parts of the law. And so there's this rumor that's floating around that Paul's telling those Jews, you don't have to do that junk. You should not do that stuff anymore. You should not do that stuff anymore. But then as we see in this verse, uh, as you read in verse 22, 23, 24, Paul takes the vow and walks into the temple and does these Jewish customs. So you're wondering. Well, here's, here's what it says. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as those outside the law, etc. You can keep going. And he says this. <clears throat> I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. So I think we need to know the mindset of Paul as we're going into this interaction that he has with James and the suggestion that James makes to wonder, why does Paul do this? Because there's commentators, I mean, I'm going to read them, commentators that go back and forth that say, Paul has forsaken the gospel. <laughs> like he, he doesn't even understand the gospel he's been preaching. And there's others like, Paul is really gospel-minded here as he does this. You're like, okay, which one is it? Because I'm not smarter than y'all. So um, let's, let's look at this. So in verse, <coughs> verse 20, where James says, you see, brother, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And watch this little phrase here as he finishes verse 20. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That means to forsake the law. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So there's this controversy or this, this rumor about Paul. Hey Jews, don't do those things anymore. You're out of step with the gospel if you do those things. And in some sense, if they're doing it for the purpose of salvation, that's true. But if they're just doing it as just a kind of continuation of their customs and they know that it's not for salvation, then it's not out of step with the gospel. Which, what, what is it? So it's real nuanced in trying to figure it out. So uh, anyway, there's these people that are super zealous for the law, the Jewish Christians that are zealous law people, and they hear Paul's in town. Paul's in town, and they want to they confront Paul. We hear this rumor, and we want to know, Paul, what's your stance here? So James wants to kind of head that off. James wants to stop, squelch the controversy, calm those zealous law Christians down. Uh, and, and so if they think Paul hates the law, but they see him doing Jewish rituals, then they'll think, well, Paul doesn't hate the law. So James proposes this thing to Paul. He says, hey, Paul, there's people that think you hate the law of Moses. But if they get here and they see you practicing Jewish customs, they probably won't. So here's what happens. Verse 22. What then is to be done? In other words, there's this rumor floating around that you hate the law, Paul, and you hate Moses. Uh, when they get here, you can see that, uh, they will certainly hear that you have come. They're going to know that you're in Jerusalem. Let's shut them up before they get here, basically. So here's what I propose you do, Paul, verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. We just so happen to have these four guys over here that have been going through this 30-day ritual, taking the Nazarite vow. That's in Acts 18, 18, uh, which is taken from Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, the Nazarite vow, uh, where they shave their heads and they, they uh, make a promise and keep this vow before the Lord for 30 days. Well, Paul, we just happen to have these guys that are 23 days in on this 30-day Nazarite vow. And so we, we, what we want you to do is join them in this vow. Now, Paul, you're going to be doing it for seven days, but you know, according to our Jewish customs, whenever you've been hanging around with all the Gentiles, you become unclean. And you should be purified in this seven-day exercise with them so that in a seven-day period, they're going to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. You can go with them. And when those zealous law Jewish Christians come here and see you practicing Jewish customs, well, they're not going to say you hate Moses. They're going to say... Well, maybe, Paul, maybe this rumor's not right. Maybe this rumor's wrong. So watch this. Do therefore what we tell you. We have these four men who are under vow. Take these men, and you go with them, and purify yourself along with them. And here it is. Pay their expenses. Pay their expenses. Now, what are the expenses? If you look at verse 26, we'll see what those expenses are. Paul, Paul does it, by the way. 
this to give away the end. Paul took the man next day, purified himself along with them, and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled after the seven days. And watch this. And the offering, that's animals, presented for each one of them. Those four men made animal sacrifice offerings during their, their customs, and Paul floated the bill. Well, this is where the commentators get insane, right? Wait a second. You're telling me Paul paid money for animals to be sacrificed? Because in Jewish custom, the sacrifice of animals for the atonement of sin, and we already know that Jesus is the one-time sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Why is Paul paying for animals? That's anathema. That is absolutely against the gospel. How is he paying for that? Does Paul forgotten the good news that Jesus is the sacrifice? Don't have to make any more animal sacrifices. What's Paul thinking? Well, Paul's thinking, if we're being generous to Paul in James' proposal, Paul is thinking, I want to I be conciliatory towards James and uh, love my, my, my Jewish buddies here, James and everybody else here, so that the controversy is squelched that I don't want that I don't hate Moses and I'll do these things so when those people get here they'll think there's no big deal now we have to go on Paul's writings because there's no way that we know his motive we don't know Paul's thinking to himself because he's a super smart guy you know what I I think I'm going to do I'm going to forsake all the gospel teaching I've done and I'm going to do this because I forget about what I said in Galatians 1 6 and 1 9 that if anybody preaches any other gospel may him be accursed I know I said that but here I'm just going to make this one concession here for James because he's my buddy so James doesn't have to take heat from people I'll just do this thing and really kind of forget the gospel I don't think that that's what's going on I think if I'm going to take the full breadth of what Paul's written and and who he is that he's not forsaking the gospel but I'm going to read the the responses anyway uh, in a second so this is what happens uh this is what James says will happen. Look at back at 24. Take these men, purify yourself, pay for their expenses so that they may shave their heads. That's what they had to do at the end of the Nazarite vow. And then here's what James says is gonna happen. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, those zealous Jewish Christians. There's nothing that we've been telling, but you yourself live in observance of the law, that you still are a Jew and you live like a Jew and practice Jewish customs. Now, Probably Paul did not always practice Jewish customs, but when he was with the Jews, as it says in 1 Corinthians 9, he lived as a Jew, as though he was under the law, in order to save them. But then when he was with Gentiles, he lived as the Gentiles, because he knew he was free, in order to save them. So you're wondering, at least I am, what's going on here, and uh, was this wrong, was this right, why are you saying this, Fud? I don't even understand what your point is. All right, let's, let's get to the point. Um, here's the third thing. Here's the third thing, is this. Whatever we make of whether Paul did right or wrong, and I'll, I'll try to get to that, here's what we can say. There will be moments in our lives of wise, mutual Christian forbearance. It's just kind of the old word for patience. There will be times in our lives where we need to practice wise, mutual Christian forbearance for the sake of love for each other and gospel proclamation. That's what Paul's doing, I think. He's practicing Christian forbearance. Um, the way that I could just kind of make it applica- applicable for you right now is um, there's going to be times where you might disagree with people. And if you don't know 100% that what they're doing is wrong or right, we can mutually forbear with one another out of love for each other, which we're supposed to have, and for gospel advancement. Because we, we still want people to hear the gospel. I think that's one of the best ways we can understand it, is that we mutually, wise Christian forbearance, now, we can go back into this, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit what's going on here. Um, and hopefully you won't. I think it's just super interesting. So hopefully you do too. <laughs> um, so here's what I think is going on. So there are some things that Paul and James agree on, and there's some things that maybe they have differences of mindset on. So uh, John Stott lists these three things, and I want to tell them to you. So the first is that they, they agree about salvation. Both agree that salvation is only through Christ, Christ alone. However, they may disagree in the way of discipleship. So James would clearly say, we still want to keep the, 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 the uh, Jewish customs. Uh, and, and perhaps he may be, maybe he thinks that that makes him have a right relationship with God. Uh, probably not, but they still want to do that. The next thing is this. Um, <clears throat> they agree that Gentiles can be converted. They've already said that circumcision is not necessary and James was actually present and said yes to that in, in Acts 15 uh, so 
they both agree that Gentiles can be saved and do not have to be circumcised in order to do it. However, um, Paul was, there's this controversy that Paul was saying the Jews, when they live among the Gentiles, shouldn't practice Jewish customs anymore. And I don't think that's the case. And maybe there's some controversy between he and James there. Lastly, um, they also, when you talk about uh, practicing Jewish customs, there's the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, but there's also just the Jewish customs, you know, don't eat bacon, etc. So Paul and James are in agreement on the moral law. They both agree, if you read their letters, Christians should live holy lives. But maybe some disagreement on, or some, some, some places that they might not necessarily uh, have some total agreements is on Jewish customs. Meaning this, should Jewish believers, after they become Christians, continue to observe Jewish cultural practices, not for the purpose of having a right relationship with God, but just because that's just who they were and they don't want to stop. They don't want to eat bacon. This is their fault, but they just don't want to eat bacon, right? And they think, I, want to, I know that I'm free, but I just don't want to. I know that I don't have to be circumcised. Uh, my children have to be certain, but I want to do it. Can they, should they... Because the rumor was, Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. So James has this concern. He makes this proposal. And as he makes this proposal, he uh, asks Paul to do this. Paul does it. We could stop and just say, why doesn't Paul just say no? Why didn't he just say, James, you're asking me to appease others out of fear of man? Maybe. Again, we don't know their motives. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it was... Not necessarily fear of man, but maybe fear of God. It could, be, it could be that sometimes seeking to please others for the sake of peace is what pleases God. So it is what f- displays a fear of God. It could be. But back to this. So he's under this particular vow. He takes this vow. He does this, the shorter seven-day vow uh, with those other four men. He pays the expenses, which was likely substantial. Uh, and he does this, this purification ritual. Now, um, there's some background I want to make sure we understand. So there's this moment in Galatians chapter 2 where uh, Paul had heard about Peter. And so in, in chapter 2, starting at verse 11, uh, Paul had heard that Peter was hanging out with people who were Gentiles and kind of exercising his freedom. And then when James came and the other people came and saw Peter hanging out with those Gentiles, he like retreated away from the Gentiles and hung out with the Jews. And Paul's like, I heard about when he did that, and I opposed Peter to his face. This is what he said in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For uh, <clears throat> before certain men came from James, that's those who were Jewish, came, Peter was actually with the Gentiles, eating Gentiles' food. But when James came, Peter withdrew back and separated himself from those Gentiles, fearing that circumcision party and all those people from James and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. And when I saw that their truth was not in contact with the step of the truth of the gospel, I went to Cephas before them all and I said, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So like he's already said, you can't do that, Peter. And now we're seeing Paul living like a Jew and you're like, wait a second, Paul, which one is it? Are you, are you being, are you being controversial? I'm sorry, are you being um, out of step with what you've taught? Now, as I've already said, we know from 1 Corinthians 9 that he says, I've become all things to all people that I might save some. And so uh, I think the best way for us to think about this is this. Um, and this is how it plays out for you. So like, you have been, and I have been commanded by God in Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, to Fulfill the Great Commission. We've been commanded to uh, reach those that don't know Christ. And our propensity is, when we do that, to go to people that are just like us. Because that's who we know. We know their background, we know their culture, and it's just easiest for us to do that. And Paul doesn't do that. And I think as we're stretching, we can, ask, we can start asking ourselves, when we don't go to people that are like us, is that wrong for me to do? And I don't mean like skin color, I mean like, and, and, and sinful practices. Like, is it wrong for me to do that? Because that could be a sin for me. I don't know if I should do that. It, the propensity is just for us to, to do what's comfortable in regard to evangelism. And so uh, I, I've created in my mind as I've looked at this, this kind of, <laughs> this is a little nerdy, missiological spectrum 
of what's appropriate and what's not. Here's what I mean if that's like too nerdy for you. This is what I mean. So on this side, you can ask yourself, if I'm going to evangelize to those particular people in this particular way, like Paul, is it sinful? Is it a compromise of the gospel? And on this side, it's if I do that, I'm actually advancing the good news of Jesus and advancing the gospel. And so there's this kind of missiological spectrum from that, that's a bad idea to that's really good advances the gospel. And you can kind of take steps up so if that's sinful and actually is a compromise of the gospel, if I take one step up, it's just poor judgment, but I'm not necessarily sinful. Or the middle, middle ground is that I'm just practicing my gospel freedom that I have, and it could be either way. To the next part is I'm actually practicing gospel-motivated risk here, and uh, it, I don't think it's sinful, but it should advance the gospel. Or if I do this, it actually advances the gospel. Like um, doing this is a good thing. And, and, and serves the gospel, sends the gospel forward. Now, commentators, as they're reading Paul here in this particular instance, are saying everything along that spectrum. <laughs> they're saying what he did was a compromise of the gospel by walking in and offering the sacrifices. And other people are saying, wow, I mean, this is, gospel, Paul's so gospel-centered, it's unbelievable. We can't even believe how this is. He's really uh, conciliatory towards James shutting down the, the rumors and what he's doing is so like so unbelievably smart in the way he advances the gospel. And it's, there's commentators all over. I'll, I'll try to give you a, a hint. I, I read them too long in the first service. I'll try not to do that. F.F. F. Bruce says this. We're, so he's kind of in the middle, right? He says, whether Paul was wise in doing so could be doubted. Um, he cannot be fairly charged with compromise on his own gospel principles because we just don't know his motives. On the contrary, he was acting in strict accordance with his own stated policy, 1 Corinthians 9, become all things to all people. So, he, and he just kind of says this, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to his own emancipation. So if you're free, you're not in bondage to your freedom. Uh, so while it might have been not sinful, it, it, it was either just practicing freedom or perhaps um, just not the best choice. James Boyce, um, he puts Paul all the way over to the end. Paul's error was worse than hypocrisy, though it was that too. It was a compromise of the gospel. The same apostle who had written so many New Testament books, the man who had argued so forcefully that we're saved by Jesus Christ alone, was about to go into a Jewish temple and in the presence of the very priests who had crucified the Lord, there participate with others in a sacrifice of an animal that was meant to atone for sin. This is what he was about to, to do, is to turn his back on the only sufficient sacrifice of Christ. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. That's, that's not great. Stott uh, is a little bit different. He says that um, the solution that they came to was not a compromise in the sense of a sacrificing doctrinal moral principle, but just a concession and just practice. Uh, basically, he says, in the same tolerant spirit that, that's going on, uh, and Paul, well, we've already seen Paul's conciliatory spirit in accepting the Jerusalem decrees and circumcising Timothy, which happened in Acts 16. Um, now in the same tolerant spirit, he's prepared to undergo some purification rituals just to pacify Jewish scruples. So he's just saying, it's not that big a deal. Uh, I'll, I'll keep going. Derek Thomas um, basically just says that Paul capitulated instead of standing on principle and it flies directly in the face of the spirit that he showed when he wrote the letter to Galatians when he, insisted, uh, when he had insisted that, that to give way to Jewish scruples over circumcision was a violation of the gospel itself. Tony Morita says this. Was this a compromise of the gospel? I don't think so. <laughs> People, Paul's actions are in keeping with his missionary policy of becoming all things to all people. And in the book of Acts, we see that Paul remained true to his Jewish heritage and his own relations with the Jews. Uh, he had previously had Timothy circumcised, not a matter of salvation, but for unity. And here Paul is willing to undergo just some purification rituals in order to appease Jewish consciences. So like, it's all over. And you can just ask yourself, Bud, you've thoroughly confused me. Thank you. And why does this matter? Here's why I think it matters. Here's why I think it matters. Um, we can see that practicing evangelism is a whole lot more complex than we think it is. And some of us uh, easily can convince ourselves who and by which means we will do evangelism and, by me, and who and why means we, don't, we won't do it. Because for us it's just black and white and we can't do it because of that. And what I'm wanting you to see here is this a little bit more complex than we think. It's a little bit more... Uh, varied and we have to think about it I think a little bit more deeply than what so for those of you and hopefully this is all of you that are serious about evangelism here's why this matters here's why it matters um, we have to start thinking that there's a, a much more serious way to think deeply about doing evangelism 
And we need to know what's compromised and what's legitimate in our own personal evangelism. And I think that what we can draw from this is that there's a little bit more complexity on who you do evangelism. The whole point is this, right? Don't just box yourself in on the people that you think are the people that you're supposed to do evangelism with. There's probably more people that aren't like you that you can do evangelism with and you're not compromising because they need to hear the gospel. Tony Marita sums it all up by this, saying this. Never compromise the gospel. Don't change the message. You and I are wretched sinners. Without Christ, you'll go to hell. Trust in Jesus now. And the Lord takes, the Lord decides, or the Lord uh, will, will work out who, who gets saved, right? Never compromise the gospel. But also, never participate in sin when you are attempting to reach people. But, this is the most important, don't convey the impression that everyone must first be like you before they can take your invitation to accept Christ seriously. They don't have to look like you and be like you and keep the, keep the uh, Christian faith like you. If you're awesome, maybe, maybe they will, right? <laughs> but not necessarily. Not necessarily. And you should never make a precursor of whether you, you'll share the gospel with them first, deciding whether they'll do that. I think that evangelism a whole lot, is a whole lot more complex than we think, and it's not necessarily as black and white. And we have to think through those things uh, really seriously. Um, if you're wondering, well, then I don't know. Here's the best advice I can give you. If you ever have questions, don't try to figure it out on your own. Ask your Christian friends. Ask your community group leaders. Ask me. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through that together. But there, there might be some limits, but maybe there won't. Um, Kent Hughes, uh, as he's looking at this whole interaction, he, he remains really neutral the, the entire time. And he just says this. Which view is correct? If Paul was in error, he was probably dangerously close, but perhaps it's just better to reserve judgment and not say. Um, and this is, after he says that, he gives a few pieces of advice on, on what we can do then. When we're talking about uh, having these wise, mutual Christian forbearance for the sake of gospel proclamation and, and who and how we do evangelism and how we interact with people that are not like us. And he says this, in our, in our moments of highest spiritual motivation, which means we have the best of intentions, we need to be especially beware of error and bad judgment. We're still capable of making bad decisions. So uh, motive is good, but also what you're doing matters. That's one little caution as we look at this and as we think about uh, sharing. But also, um, we can be pressured towards questionable act- action uh, by the sins of others. So whenever we're sharing the gospel, we don't need to participate in sin and be pressured to do wrong things. Lastly, he says this. We need to have hearts that because of a passion for souls and passions for God's glory are willing to run towards gospel-risking decisions, gospel-risk-taking decisions. So since we love God and since we love other people, we need to at some point take risk. Not to where we participate in sin, not to where we change the gospel, but still out of Christian forbearance or patience and love for other people and for the sake of gospel proclamation, we need to share the gospel and take sometimes some risks in our life. And maybe if, if I'm looking at my own life, and maybe, maybe this is you, maybe we don't take enough risk. Maybe we don't take enough risk. Gospel risk. You know, I'm not saying like risk, like go play in traffic. Like real gospel risk. Um, so let's just ask these questions then. Uh, do you show evidences of gospel action in your life? Do you show that? Are there times where you have, um, because of the gospel, find yourself continually celebrating gospel advancement, no matter who they were saved, and they didn't get saved on your parameters, but you're like celebrating. Yes, they got saved. Secondly, do you find yourself continually with a mindset of wanting to use your resources for people to get saved? And when you do, it tells the truth of what's happened to you. Thirdly, um, whatever your view of what Paul does here, which I know it's a little bit like, I'm not even sure I understand you, Fudd. I know. Um, but here, let's ask this question. Um, Are you willing to forbear with your Christian brother and sister out of mutual love that you might disagree? Also, are you willing to take nice, not nice, but willing to take good gospel risks in order for gospel advancement? And when you do it, you don't just make sure that you share the gospel with people that think like you, but maybe you think outside the box and think, I could could hang out and talk to people that aren't like me and share the gospel in ways that maybe I've never even thought of. Not in a sinful way, 
Not to change the gospel, but certainly with patterns I've never thought of. Um, I think that this might be the best 21st century applications we can make from this difficult, kind of controversial uh, text here. Um, as you think through those things, let me, let me ask you this. Celebrating gospel advancement, using your resources for the, for the advancement of the gospel, and taking good gospel risks for the uh, purpose of gospel proclamation. <clears throat> Which one of those, or maybe all three, do you need to think about and pray about and have in your life? Which one of those is the Holy Spirit saying, this is something I want you to think about and, and really consider and start thinking more deeply about in your life? Just uh, whatever you're writing on, if you're writing on paper or you're writing on, typing in your phone, or, you know, if you're just writing in your head, which, you know, you'll forget it, but maybe you need to write it down. Like, write that down as something to really think about. Text yourself, that's what I do. Like, I literally find my name and send a text message to myself, so I'll look at it, um, if, you, if that's the way you have to remember. And when you do that, over the course of this week, really pray about that thing. Really pray about putting the gospel in action in your life, out of love for Jesus, out of what he's done for you, putting that thing into action in your life. Now, God's not going to love you more. You're already as beloved as you can be by God as a son or daughter. But if you're like me and you say, I, want, I don't want to just kind of live on cruise control in Christianity. I really want to really step forward and do a whole lot more. Consider that. Think about it, pray about it, and think about it a lot this week. Discuss it in your community groups. Talk about it with your Christian friends. Um, Don't just hear this and say, okay, yeah, and then forget about it next Sunday when we're talking about Paul getting arrested. Really think deeply about it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, um, you're the promised teacher, and you take uh, the confusing probably sometimes incoherent things that, that teachers say and teach our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray for, I pray for that this morning, that if, uh, if there's incoherency, that, Lord, you would make it coherent. If there's uh, fuzzy thinking, that you would make those things clear. But more so, God, that we have heard these challenges from your text, that even though we don't necessarily know whether this was a right decision or wrong decision that Paul made with James, um, we can see the spirit behind it that there was a, uh, a desire to, to uh, forbear with his Christian brother for the sake of gospel advancement and for the sake of uh, unity in the church. And so, may, Lord, may we, we have those things in our life. I pray for all of us that we would, because of what Christ has done, really want to have um, actions in our lives that glorify you because we're so in love with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.